We're so grateful that you're joining us once again for the 2022 Princeton Forum on Youth Ministry. And I have a um, distinct pleasure and privilege today, but um, it might make me a little emotional. And so I'm gonna read words on a page as I introduce our second lecturer for our event. So friends, I stared at a blank page for about an hour today wondering where on earth I was supposed to begin with my introduction of our second lecturer. And that is for one reason, and that reason is that I cannot find adequate words to tell you about my colleague, my spiritual companion, my constant encourager, one of the best friends I've ever had, indeed a brother, the brother that God knew I needed, the Reverend Dr. Nathan Stuckey or Nate, as you must call him. <clears throat> so Nate grew up on a, um, on a farm as a Mennonite in Kansas, where he helped his family raise registered black Angus cattle and grew wheat and grain and grain sorghum, which is a thing, right? And, and hay and other things he was telling me about that I pretended to know. Um, <laughs> when he read Jesus's parables about scattering seeds on different soils, Nate didn't have to do the metaphorical translation that, say, I had to do to make any sense of it. He knew different soils and seeds, and he learned from a very young age a kind of muscle memory that soils and souls must both be cultivated with care and attention. He earned a BA in music from Bethel College in Kansas, where he met his now wife, who is with us today. Janelle, where are you? Back in the back. Janelle is actual saint material, so stay tuned for that announcement. After college, Nate served in an ecumenical youth ministry on the eastern shores of Maryland before returning to Kansas for two more years of farming. And then in 2007, Nate, Janelle, and their son Joshua and daughter Jenna arrived in Princeton, New Jersey for a two-year program, after which they were going to return to Kansas. But spoiler alert, they are still here. Nate received his three-year MDiv in 2010, followed by his PhD in practical theology in the subdiscipline of Christian education and formation in 2015. They also brought another kid into the mix, uh, my beloved Isaac, who I adore. And all along this strange journey, Nate held these two callings in hand, a call to love and serve the earth through agriculture, and a call to love and to serve the earthlings that we call people. But how do you pursue both of these callings? Aren't they like fundamentally different? As he was finishing up his PhD, he and some good colleagues and friends began to wonder, what if these aren't actually different, but instead are like all false binaries? What if in fact, ministry and ecology belong to each other? Enter the Farminary Project at Princeton Theological Seminary, which Nate founded and has served as the director since 2015. The Farminary forms leaders for service in the church and the world by integrating theological education with small-scale regenerative agriculture. And you can ask him more about what some of those words mean. <laughs> Believe me when I say that this small 21-acre plot of land just down the road changes lives. It's changed mine. 
You can read more about these stories in a book that he is currently working on, and I know this because his office, which is right across from mine, door is shut every morning where he is diligently and deliberately working on this book. I can't wait to read it. It will be utterly amazing. But in the meantime, you can read Nate's first book, Wrestling with Rest, inviting youth to discover the gift of the Sabbath, which calls us, people who love young people, parents and youth pastors, to, well, stop to cease, to trust the God in whom we live and move and have our being. It is essential reading for any human and especially for all of you. As you can see, I have read it <laughs> quite thoroughly, but most of all, it has read me. It has taught me that I never really understood God's grace. Friends, would you join me in welcoming my work buddy, whose friendship to me is a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward grace, Nate Stuckey. It feels like it might be <clears throat> sufficient just to dismiss you at this point. <laughs> It's all downhill from there. Uh, oh well. Uh, I'm so grateful uh, to be here. I'm grateful for the invitation, uh, for the challenge. You're going to hear me in a mode that I don't typically engage. I don't typically just talk for a long time. Uh, and I don't know if it's the best idea for tonight. I don't know if it's the best pedagogy. But what's been given to me here is an opportunity to work out some thoughts, to put some things together, some conversation partners together uh, that I haven't previously put together, at least not in a sustained way like this. Um, before I go further, I should say, uh, give one <laughs> substantial acknowledgement to the IYM. Of course, thank you, Megan, for the beautiful introduction. Um, we could go on and on about that one. But it's true that if the IYM didn't exist, Nate Stuckey would have never attended Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, when I was a youth pastor on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, my primary mentor in ministry, Merv Stoltzfus, was a regular attender of the Forum on Youth Ministry. He invited me here. I didn't know the place existed before that. And so then when I uh, had gone back to farming and realized that wasn't the ultimate call, I only applied to seminary at one place, and it was here. Things have not gone according to plans. I, hopefully that's clear enough from Megan's introduction. Uh, and yet I am profoundly grateful. Also a confession. Our title is Faith in an Exhausted World. Friends, I'm tired. <laughs> I don't have this figured out. And part of what I hope to communicate is that I don't think any one of us can figure it out. I don't actually think humans can figure it out. It's going to take some help. And so I don't know if it's typical to offer prayer before a lecture, but in my experience, I need divine aid as much or more in the lecture hall as I do in the chapel. Let's pray. Oh God, we do give you thanks for the gift of this time and place that we can share. More of your gifts surround us than we currently recognize. May our time together open us to greater recognition of and gratitude for these gifts. The vast members of your creation, including humans, 
and yes, even you in our midst. Help us, God, to stop, to recognize these living gifts, and to give thanks, thanks that we are not alone, and that more life surrounds us than we realize. We pray in the name of the Creator who became a creature, Jesus the Christ. Amen. As Megan already noted, uh, three years ago I published a book titled Wrestling with Rest. The empirical research I did for that book happened years before that, almost a decade ago. The exhaustion of our current moment has brought me back to that work, to the conversations I had with 39 seniors in high school in the spring of 2013. I spent that semester exploring a single research question with these young people. I asked, how do they understand and experience rest? In the end, they overwhelmingly defined rest with reference to anxiety, worry, and stress. Something was most likely to qualify as rest if it reduced anxiety, stress, and worry. Thus, if Netflix reduces stress, it counts as rest. If skateboarding calms anxieties, it counts as rest. Though somewhat disheartening for its focus on the struggles of life, this understanding of rest made enough sense to me, who, after all, doesn't crave a break from the pressures and the demands of life. Yet as we continued to unpack their understandings and experiences of rest, these young people ultimately articulated a cruel irony when it came to rest and the worries of life. Though they confess their desire to rest, they, they confess their desire for rest that brings relief from the anxieties of life, they also confessed that rest created its own anxiety. These were industrious, intelligent, high-achieving young people. They had school, jobs, athletics, church, theater, college applications, music, friends, families, and on and on and on. Of course, they longed for rest. And if we stop and think about it, perhaps it makes perfect sense that rest created its own anxiety. These young people had a lot to do. They had good things to do, important things to do. So what happens then when, regardless of your exhaustion, you actually try to stop and rest? You find yourself thinking about all the things that aren't getting done. What a heartbreaking reality to long for rest that might provide some relief from the pressures of life, yet only to find anxiety in another register when attempting to enter that rest. This evening, I wonder, do you identify? Do we identify with these young people who longed for rest, yet struggled to enter it? As my conversations continued with these young people, we spent some time reflecting on the kind of rest they desire. Stephanie, one of the students, expressed to me her struggle to have both mental and physical rest at the same time. She might be able to still or quiet her body, but then her mind would go racing. If she wanted to calm her mind, she might go on a run. She longed for a rest that would be vast enough to encompass her whole being, body, mind, and soul. Friends, my conversations with these young people, my conversation with Stephanie happened, like I said, almost a decade ago, before a global pandemic. 
before the 2016 and 2020 election cycles, before the acceleration, acceleration of the polarization and the division in our political system, before George Floyd's murder, before a senseless war in the Ukraine, before all of this, they named it. Stephanie named it. They named their exhaustion. They named their longing for rest, for a rest vast enough to encompass their whole being. This leads me to a question for us. Are we there yet? Stephanie and her classmates were there a decade, ago, a decade ago. They were ready to name their exhaustion and their longing for rest. Are we there yet? Have we reached the point when we're ready to confess our exhaustion and our longing for rest? Have we reached a point when we are ready to not only confess our exhaustion, but to deeply interrogate it, to bring into that interrogation the deepest resources of our faith, that is, to invite God into the interrogation of our exhaustion and into our longing for rest. As far as I can tell, we are exhausted. I'm exhausted. Creation is exhausted. Tonight I want to begin the interrogation of our exhaustion, the exhaustion of creation. Recognizing the irony, I invite us to ask some difficult questions. I know maybe the last thing we want is to tackle difficult questions in the midst of our exhaustion, but I think we must because if we don't, if we don't, we surely risk the endless repetition and expansion of the exhaustion that already threatens to overwhelm us. Here are some core questions. Does the church in its life, in its ministries, and the carrying out of its mission contribute more to the world's exhaustion or to its renewal and restoration? Does Christian faith bring anything substantial and meaningful to bear in the context of an exhausted world? Does our work toward the renewal and the restoration of the world here and now necessarily lead to our perpetual exhaustion? Must it be the case that while we work for the restoration and renewal of the world, we who claim that work as central to our, vo our vocations must perpetually suffer exhaustion? Does faith bring any hope to an exhausted world? Is there any hope for faith in an exhausted world? The acute and layered fatigues of our current moment might tempt us to focus here and now as we begin the interrogation of our exhaustion. In the limited time of this lecture, of this lecture I suggest a different approach. I hope to bring three dialogue partners into the interrogation of our exhaustion. The first you've already met, Stephanie and her classmates. As I reread their stories in this moment, I perceive new things, new challenges, new opportunities. The second conversation is William Cronin's classic ecological history of New England. Cronin is no theologian, but the church shows up in haunting ways as he recounts the impact of European settlers and colonists on the shores of New England hundreds of years ago. I believe the church's role in that story sheds light on our current exhaustion. Finally, I will invite us to recall again one of the stories of the very beginning. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, that seven-day story ever offers new layers of meaning. Among other things, it proclaims with stunning clarity that the telos, the aim, the trajectory of all creation from the very beginning is not exhaustion. It is communion 
among God and the whole creation. It is the whole creation at rest with God. The whole creation at rest with God. That doesn't sound like the world we now inhabit. How did we get here? Well, almost 40 years ago, the historian William Cronin published the first edition of his landmark work, Changes in the Land, Indians, Colonists, and the Ecology of New England. As fellow historian John Demos notes in his foreword to the 20th anniversary edition of Changes in the Land, Cronin brought the discipline of history quite literally to ground level. Cronin sought to write an ecological history of colonial New England. This meant expanding the boundaries of historical inquiry beyond human institutions to the natural ecosystems which provide the context for those institutions. Cronin states, quote, my thesis is simple. The shift from Indian to European dominance in New England entailed important changes well known to historians in the way these peoples organized their lives. But it also involved fundamental reorganizations less well known to historians in the region's plant and animal communities." Unquote. Now here in 2022, 20 years since the 20th anniversary edition of Changes in the Land, I believe Cronin's work sheds light on our current exhaustion. For the record, I will not be able to do justice to the scope or the nuance of Cronin's work. I invite you to pick it up on your own. But what I hope to offer here are core components of Cronin's argument that bear particular import for the question of faith in an exhausted world. Core component number one, new world abundance. When European settlers arrived in New England, they perceived a vast, almost mind-boggling abundance of natural resources. They marveled at, and here I quote Cronin, the incredible abundance of New England plant and animal life, an abundance which, when compared with Europe, left more than one visitor dumbfounded. Many found themselves protesting to correspondents on the other side of the Atlantic that, however hard it was to believe, they were not exaggerating the reports of what they had discovered there, unquote. European settlers and explorers cataloged the abundance of the waters, cod, smelt, alewives, sturgeon, and herring, the abundance of land animals, bear, deer, wolves, fox, beaver, otter, moose, and elk, and the abundance of the skies and birds, including ducks, wild turkey, dove, and famously passenger pigeons that were described by one settler as being so numerous that they had neither, jeepers, <laughs> poor passenger pigeons, but seriously, they had neither beginning nor ending, length nor breadth, and so thick that I could not see the sun. Core component number two, the paradox of perceived poverty among Native Americans. Let me say that again, the paradox of perceived poverty among Native Americans. The abundance of natural resources created a paradox for the early colonists as they considered the abundance in relationship to the lives of Native Americans. When colonists looked at Native Americans, they perceived poverty. Cronin writes, quote, here was a riddle. How could a land be so rich and its people so poor? At least in the eyes of many colonists, the Indians, blessed with such great natural wealth, nevertheless lived like to our beggars in England, unquote. Here, the early colonists faced a crucial question. How would they interpret and respond to this riddle, to the paradox of perceived poverty in a land of abundance? Overwhelmingly, European settlers interpreted this paradox as a sign of failure on the part of Native Americans. To the mind of the settler, the Native American clearly did not know what they were doing. 
They simply could not imagine how or why native peoples lived as they did. What they could imagine was life in the old world and through the imposition of those images and, excuse me, though the images, one more time, and though the imposition of those images certainly adapted somewhat to time and context, old world norms overwhelmingly informed the impact of early settlers and colonists on the land known as New England. In some sense, the name says it all, New England settlers fashioning the new world into the image of the old. Settlers impose on the land and its inhabitants their own old world ideas of proper relationship between people and place. This relationship was characterized from the, outside, from the outset by a commodified understanding of land, plants, and animals. Cronin notes, quote, most of the early explorers sought, what, sought to discover what Richard Hackliet had called in 1584 merchantable commodities. These were the natural re products which could be shipped to Europe and sold at a profit in order to provide a steady income for colonial settlements." Cronin continues, quote, more than anything else, it was the treatment of land and property as commodities traded at market that distinguished English conceptions of ownership from Indian ones, unquote. I've already foreshadowed the impact of this commodified relationship between settler and land in my previous reference to the passenger pigeons. In a word, the impact of settler and colonial understandings of the environment as commodity was devastating. Or stated in the terms of my lecture title, the impact was exhausting. The passenger pigeon is extinct, utterly exhausted, utterly exhausted from the face of the earth. In the face of abundance characterized as commodity, European settlers and colonists steadily depleted abundance to the point of exhaustion. Passenger pigeons provide but one example. Cronin notes also the exhaustion of the soil. Contrary to the life of seasonal mobility among Native Americans, settlers, true to the name, settler, settled in a place permanently, then practiced agriculture and commerce in ways that depleted soil, dried up streams, exterminated wildlife, and had disastrous impacts on the lives of Native Americans. Our concern tonight, my concern tonight, is with a core component of the logic that led to this exhaustion in the first place. It was referenced time and time again by the early settlers and colonists. It was Genesis 1:28. Why did they do what they did? God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This verse and specifically the command to subdue the earth consistently influenced the relationship between settler, colonist, and the land. As I already noted, Cronin is not a theologian. He's a historian, an ecological historian. And when it comes to settler and colonist rationale for their understanding of right relationship between people and place, he simply conveys what the historical record, he conveys the historical record for what it says. Settlers sought ownership of new world land so that its resources could be claimed, commodities could be sold, and capital could be accumulated. For example, the Massachusetts court made its ownership theories quite clear when it declared that, quote, what lands any of the Indians within this jurisdiction have by possession or improvement, by subduing of the same, they have just right thereunto, according to that, Genesis 1, 28. 
The implication was that Native Americans did not own any other kind of land. Clam banks, fishing ponds, berry picking areas, hunting lands, the great bulk of a village's territory. And since the non-agricultural Indians of the North had only these kinds of land, English theories assigned them no property rights at all. More broadly, Cronin notes that colonial claims to ownership of land in New England had two potential sources, purchases from the Indians or grants from the English crown. The latter tended quickly to absorb the former. The crown derived its own claim to the region from several sources. Cabot's discovery of New England in 1497 and 98, the failure of Native Americans adequately to subdue the soil as Genesis 128 required, and from the king's status, initially a decidedly speculative one, as the first Christian monarch to establish colonies there. In other words, and in summary, the church its interpretation of Genesis 128 and its understanding of creation, its doctrine of creation, sits all too prominently in a trajectory of exhaustion. A trajectory of exhaustion that stretches back hundreds of years and, as far as I can tell, continues to this day. I'm not sure we have even begun to wrestle with the implications of this reality. It is a reality worth restating. Early colonists justified the theft of land from Native Americans with their reading of Genesis 1.28. They believed that since Native Americans were failing to subdue the land, God granted the land to settlers instead. Early colonists also justified an extractive and atomized relationship with the land based on their interpretation of Genesis 1, and especially verse 28. This is what I think Cronin provides for us. I believe he helps demonstrate in our, that in our current moment, we are buried centuries deep in the logics of exhaustion, in intertwined theologies and economies that constrict our imaginations as they lead to the unchecked consumption of creation's gifts. Cronin also demonstrates that the exhaustion of people and the exhaustion of the broader creation are in most cases two sides of the same coin. Human exhaustion of creation inevitably exhausts human creatures. Human exhaustion of creation inevitably exhausts human creatures. We can see it in colonial New England. We can see it in the institution of slavery. We see it in our modern industrial food system. Again, we are buried centuries deep in the logics of exhaustion. This forces an explicitly theological question. Did the settlers get Genesis 1 right? Is it true that Genesis 1 and its command to humans to subdue the earth justifies an understanding of the earth as a bundle of commodities for market and consumption? Or are there other ways of reading those ancient texts? This is where we must turn now. Genesis 1. Now, if we had a weekend together, I would read the entire passage, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and I would invite us to dwell with it, to ruminate upon it, but we don't have time for that, too much to do, let's go. <laughs> but since we don't have that time, I want to lead us through the first five days relatively quickly and then slow down a bit with days five, excuse me, days six and seven. Our question is one of eco-theological anthropology. In other words, what vision of humanity in relation to God and the broader creation does this text convey? To aid us in our exploration, I have provided a visually stunning and highly sophisticated handout. <laughs> I invite you to pull it and a writing utensil out at this time 
This is Nate Stuckey's version of being technologically cutting edge. <laughs> In a moment, this will get interactive. Brace yourselves. Follow along as we work through the story. In the beginning, formless, void, and darkness. This is Genesis 1, 1, and 2. Then we go to day one, light. God says, let there be light. God sees that the light is good. There's evening and morning the first day. So on your chart, day one, it says light. You don't have to do anything yet. It's already filled out for you. You're welcome. <laughs> day two, the dome or sky to separate the waters above from the waters below. There's evening and there's morning the second day. And so on your chart, you'll see day two, sky and waters. Day three, dry land and vegetation. It's worth noting a new development on this day. Here, for the first time, God invites creation to join in the creating. God says, let the earth put forth vegetation. And the earth brought forth vegetation. And God sees that it is good. There's evening and there's morning the third day. And on your chart, you will see day three, dry land and vegetation. Brace yourself. Get your pen out. This is where the lecture gets interactive. Day four. Lights to rule the day and the night and the seasons. This too merits our attention. Even as God invites creation to join the creating on day three, on day four, God shares authority. Sun, moon, and stars rule the day, night, and seasons. Scripture attri attributes the same Hebrew word to Israel's God, Yahweh. For example, Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom, O God, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, same word, your rule, endures throughout all generations. Thus, God shares rule with sun, moon, and stars. God sees that it is good, evening and morning, the fourth day. On your chart, if you want, and you should, you might write lights, or lights, or sun, moon, and stars, the lights. Day five, birds and marine life. Again, the creation participates. Let the waters bring forth, and the waters brought forth, and God sees that it is good. There's evening and morning, the fifth day. If I, was you, if I was you on your chart, day five, I'd put birds and marine life. It's nice and concise, birds and marine life. Day six, land animals, wild animals, cattle, everything that creeps upon the ground, and God saw that it was good. Now here, verse 26, partway through day six, we slow down, and I will read the verses. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that God had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning the sixth day. And so on your charts, you might write for day six, land animals, humans, food. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then day seven begins chapter two, verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that God had done and God rested on the seventh day from all the work that God had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that God had done in creation. There at the bottom of your chart, day seven, I might write something like completion through rest. What stands out for you from this, albeit limited reading, telling of the story? I would highlight a few things. First, the goodness of creation. Over and over again, God sees that creation is good. And the whole, at the close of day six, God pronounces to be not just good, very good. Second, the stunning diversity to creation. I didn't get to lift this up in the quick telling, but in the NRSV, the phrase of every kind occurs 10 times. The phrase points to the extraordinary variety embedded in the created order. Fruit trees of every kind, plants yielding seed of every kind, trees of every kind, great sea monsters, that's right, great sea monsters of every kind, winged birds of every kind, wild animals of every kind, cattle of every kind, things that creep upon the ground of every kind, and again and again, God sees that it is good. The creatures are good. Their stunning variety is good. The sum of creation, very good. Third, note the movement from formless void to an ordered, even symmetrical whole. Look at your chart. Day one, light corresponding to day four, lights, the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, the sky and the waters filled on day five with birds and marine life. Birds for the sky, marine life for the waters. Day three, land and vegetation complemented on day six with the land creatures and humans that fill the land and the vegetation that becomes food. Do you see it? The whole story moves from formless void to ordered whole. The symmetry conveys the connections among the members of creation, sky for birds and birds for sky, waters for marine life and marine life for waters, land creatures for land and land for land creatures. And near the very close of day six, food. God gives food, perhaps the most poignant example of creaturely interdependence. That's right, creaturely interdependence. This statement of interdependence vis-a-vis -vis food provides the immediate prelude to God's super affirmation of the whole of creation. God saw everything that God had made, and indeed, it was very good. The creatures are good. Their interdependence and communion, very good. The whole is stunning, even beautiful. But we're still stuck with Cronin's question. We're still stuck with the question of the history of New England. Right there in the midst of this beautiful story, the command, it's there. Humans, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. This one word troubles me more than any other in the passage. A search for its range of meanings in Hebrew only increases my discomfort. To subject, to subdue, to force, bring into bondage, make subservient, violate, dominate. 
or tread down. I cannot explain this word away. I can't wrestle it into a 21st century tidy hermeneutical framework. In a word, I can't subdue it. <laughs> and frankly, I don't think I'm supposed to. I don't think we're supposed to. I'm wondering if I can remember here offhand, today is the third anniversary of Rachel, Rachel Held Evans' passing. And she had a quote about the Bible. She said, um, it always disturbs me when people aren't disturbed. Something like, it always disturbs me when people aren't disturbed by the Bible. It leads me to believe they must not have read it. <laughs> I suggest we let this word do exactly what I suspect it is doing to us right now. Let it unsettle us. Let it mess with our assumptions about what scripture says about right relationships among God and all creation, including humans. And let it compel us to return to the broader story again and again and again. It seems to me that the broader story provides more than just this one instance of frustrating our contemporary sensibilities. We already noted the goodness of the created order that Genesis 1 lifts up repeatedly. Light, good, earth and seas, good, vegetation, good, sun, moon, and stars, good, marine life and birds, good, wild animals, cattle, everything that creeps upon the ground, good, and then finally humans. Humans? Silence. After all the affirmation of the goodness of all the various members of creation, God offers no analogous affirmation of humans. After creating humans, God never looks at them and says, they're good. What do we do with that? If we are looking for scripture to provide a blanket, unwavering, and impenetrable affirmation of autonomous human goodness, we will be disappointed. It seems to me that scripture offers nothing if not a realistic anthropology. Frankly, it leaves the question of human goodness open. God does provide an affirmation of goodness that follows God's creation of humankind, but its scope, though it undoubtedly includes humankind, extends far beyond it. It's the affirmation I've been re referencing repeatedly. It's that final verse in Genesis 1, God saw everything that God had made. And indeed, it was very good. The text seems to suggest the various members of creation, good. Humans, eh, we're not sure. The, the whole of creation, not just good, very good. Perhaps here we begin to find an answer to the questions raised by Cronin and the early colonists. If there is any goodness among humanity, it does not occur among humans in isolation. It happens in relationship to the whole, with God and with the whole host of creation. Of course, this raises another question. What kind of relationships are we talking about here? When God creates humankind on day six, the text famously states that God creates them in the image of God. In verse 26, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, so God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them. 
The sum of scripture and the theological tradition are quite clear in drawing a line between God and humans. Humans are not God. In fact, they get into all kinds of trouble when they think they are. Here, too, perhaps a clue to the questions raised by Cronin and the early colonists. And yet, here at the beginning, at the beginning, with the question of human goodness open, God creates humans in the image of God. Is it possible, then, that we might look at God's relationship with creation for clues about how humans should relate to their fellow creatures? Could that be part of the image of God humans are supposed to reflect? If so, then we do well to pay attention to the contours of God's relationship with creation. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 tells us quite a lot about that relationship. First, God's relationship with a creation is attentive. God recognizes, perceives that creation is good. God does not ignore creation, but rather pays close attention. Second, God's relationship with creation is empowering. It is enlivening. Recall that God invites creation into the act of creating. The earth brings forth vegetation. The waters bring forth marine life. God shares power, shares rule with the sun, moon, and stars. Third, God's relationship with creation is fructifying. That's right, fructifying. God blesses creation. It says, be fruitful and multiply. God brings forth the fruitfulness and vitality of a stunningly varied creation of every kind, of every kind, of every kind. In other words, God creates a world where the whole creation flourishes. I think we must ask, what if the relationship that God invites humankind in the image of God to have with the broader creation is just this kind of relationship? A relationship that is deeply attentive to creation and that participates joyfully in its flourishing and vitality. A relationship that embraces co-creation and shared power. Last but certainly not least, we must lift up the culmination of this story, this Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 story. And I would say it is part of the story that early settlers and colonists, the vast majority of them, utterly missed. Though many a doctrine of creation omit it, the pinnacle, the crown of this story, is not humans on day six. It is God's rest on day seven. It comes at just the moment when it seems that humans should get to work. It is humanity's first full day of existence, but it is not a day of work. It is a day of rest. According to the plain meaning of this story, humanity's starting point with God, humanity's starting point with God is rest, as if the, as if the text was to say, stop. Humans, stop. Before you do anything, get to know this God. Similarly, humanity's starting point with the vast host of creation is rest. This seventh day, their first full day of existence, their introduction to the whole creation, and again, stop. Before you do anything with or to this creation, just spend some time with it. This is the essence of the seventh day, to cease, to stop. And for millennia, this seventh day has been lifted up as a symbol and sign of the end of time. Here at the beginning, a foretaste of God and all creation in, at rest in eternity. We might say then that the starting point and the telos, the beginning and the end of the relationship among God and all creation, including humans, from the start is the opposite of exhaustion. It is rest. It is rest for all creation. 
How differently might the history books read if we had taken this starting point seriously? How differently would Cronin's book read if rest had been the starting point and aim of the relationships that began when the Europeans arrived in what we now, in what we now call New England? Certainly, it wouldn't be called New England. As I returned to Cronin, <coughs> excuse me, as I returned to Cronin in light of this rereading of Genesis 1 and 2, the tragedy of this history confronts me all the more. It seems to me the early settlers of New England arrived wildly overconfident in their knowledge of God and their sense of vocation. They arrived believing that they had found paradise, some likened it to Eden. And they assumed they were bringing God's salvation to a supposedly backward people by opposing, imposing on the new world the norms of the old. We continue to live in the wake of these decisions. Their approach demonstrated the opposite of the Sabbath sensibility and ethic of the seventh day of creation. There was no stopping to get to know the land and its many inhabitants on their own terms. There was no sustained reflection on the possibility that the creator might already be at work in the new world. Instead, settlers and colonists operated within a tragic double oblivion. On one hand, they were almost entirely oblivious to the relationship that actually existed between Native Americans and the land. Because this relationship was unfamiliar, it was assumed to be wrong. It simply never became the dominant opinion among European settlers that the Native Americans were a significant cause of the abundance of creation in the New World. Yet Cronin demonstrates that the land and its many non-human inhabitants thrived and flourished precisely because Native Americans never took more than they used, and they had absolutely no concept of creation as a marketable commodity. The second apparent oblivion concerns European memory of the old world. See, one reason Europeans explored the resources of the new world in the first place was because the resources of the old had already been exhausted. Firewood provides one example. England depleted its supply of wood fuel. The discovery of coal temporarily averted the crisis, though it led to another ecological disaster by way of the infamous London fog, created in part by the exhaust, note the parallel term, the exhaust of the burnt coal. Not surprisingly, settlers arrived in the New World overjoyed at the abundance of timber. The surprising part is their apparent thoughtless imposition of old world patterns of consumption in the New World with little recognition that those same patterns would exhaust the New World just as they had the old. In fact, New World abundance all too frequently resulted in settlers engorging themselves with what they thought to be an infinite commodity. Trees, again, illustrate. One Englishman, Francis Higginson, commented in the 1600s on how in New England firewood was so cheap and the fires built were so large that a poor servant in New England could stay warmer than many noblemen in England. Building construction also reflected the rapid consumption of trees turned commodity. Cronin notes, quote, Thatch and slate roofs were replaced with wooden shingles. House size in general increased over English models so that buildings not only required more lumber to build, but more firewood to heat. Even where bricks replaced lumber in construction, great quantities of wood were needed for firing their clay. In short, most aspects of colonial house carpentry came to rely on the seemingly endless supply of timber." Unquote. 
recall again the plight of the passenger pigeon. The National Audubon Society summarizes concisely their fate. Quote, the extinction of the passenger pigeon had two major causes. Commercial exploitation of pigeon meat on a massive scale and loss of habitat. Are we there yet? Are we ready to confess our exhaustion? Are we prepared to reckon with the fact that human exhaustion and the exhaustion of creation are simply two sides of the same coin? And are we willing to confess that the exhaustion of creation, including humans, has never, ever been God's desire? Let me be as clear as I can on this point. I do not, in fact, believe that there is hope for me of relief from exhaustion. I don't believe there is hope for you of relief from our current exhaustion. I don't believe there's hope for the human race for relief from our current exhaustion. Not on our own. In the decade or two that I have been working on the Sabbath, I have observed an overwhelming, overwhelming tendency among Christians and among church leaders in particular. It is a tendency that shows up even in the book I've written on the subject. We live and talk as if Sabbath is an individual spiritual discipline. Have you had your Sabbath this week? Did you take your Sabbath? What did you do for your Sabbath? We speak of it as the colonists did of timber or passenger pigeons, a commodity for the taking. But the Sabbath from the beginning to end is a bond. It's a glue that binds God to all creation and the members of creation to each other. Sabbath in isolation cannot be our cure because isolation is our disease. This brings me back to Stephanie and her exhaustion, her longing for a rest vast enough to encompass her whole being. In one of my interviews with Stephanie, I asked her if the ideal rest would encompass at once, both body and mind. This is what she said. She said, that'd be so nice. She paused. She said it again. That'd be so nice. During track season, I feel that a lot just because after track practice, I'm physically exhausted, so that's already there. And after I have all my homework done, and all my responsibilities done, and I can just lay in bed, and I'm so physically exhausted that I can't even think, that's rest. That's the ultimate rest, and I love it. And I can just go right to bed. Ideally, if I could have the best way of rest, it would be physically and mentally resting with no worries at all. Friends, can we perceive the tragedy of Stephanie's reality? As she ponders the dream of relief from an exhausting world, she imagines herself utterly alone. If she is to rest, it is completely up to her. No one helps, no person, no fellow member of creation, no God. If she is to have the rest she desires, she assumes she will have to physically exhaust herself, finish all of her homework, take care of all of her other responsibilities. I would assert again, Sabbath in isolation cannot be our cure because isolation and atomization are our disease. This is the world we have constructed for Stephanie. And it's been under construction 
for hundreds of years or more. This world provides no companionship, no viable partner for rest because it has been transformed into a commodity for consumption. Where do we go from here? I would still contend that the Sabbath has something to teach us about faith in an exhausted world. As I continue to immerse myself in the Sabbath as I return again and again to Genesis, and as I have been formed in and through the work of the farminary, I would humbly offer a few suggestions of starting places for faith in an exhausted world. First and foremost, abandon the myth of an individual Sabbath. When I said I had no hope for me, no hope for you, and no hope for the human race, that doesn't mean I have no hope. It means I have no hope for us on our own. Humans alone, even humans collaborating, are not capable of sufficiently addressing the world's exhaustion. The scope of our situation requires more than human agency. It requires the agency of trees, of soils, of waters, the vast host of creation. And of course, it will require divine intervention. Rest with God and creation. Second, I invite us to pursue Sabbath in intimate communion with God and creation. The need is profound. Be particularly open to unexpected Sabbath companions. Here, I think the settlers in particular missed it. These unexpected Sabbath companions. So much to learn. Yes, of course, pursue Sabbath with humans. I also recommend trees or a compost pile. Third, under the heading, where do we go from here? Anticipate, anticipate substantial resistance from within and without. I address this partially in wrestling with rest, but I should add a subsequent thought or two. I'm convinced that a primary reason we refuse to stop and rest is that we don't want to face what we find in ourselves or the world when we do. It's easy to romanticize rest, to envision that perfect VRBO and an escape from the cares of the world. I believe Sabbath moves us in the other direction. It cannot be an escape from the world. It must mean our entry deeper into it. Is this not the example God provides on the seventh day? Instead of creating the world and leaving it alone, God, by, God binds God's own self to the life of the world. Is this not the example of Holy Saturday, that Sabbath sandwiched between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Christ did not leave the world, but rather entered into it more deeply. There's nothing romantic about Sabbath rest. In my experience, if we really take stop stopping for rest seriously, we will need to be prepared to face the full gamut of the wounds of the world, including our own. We will need to be prepared to face all that we avoid through our numbing practices, endless to-do lists, ceaseless consumption, perpetual motion, we will have to confront all the ways that we contribute to the world's exhaustion. Here again, I would emphasize the futility of an individual Sabbath, the healing, we need, the healing, the wholeness, and the rest that we so desperately need will only be found in communion with God and creation, communion that starts with stopping.
Friends, the church's track record on exhaustion in the global West, in the United States in particular, leaves much to be desired. Too much of our influence, too much of our ministry has contributed, has contributed and continues to contribute more to the world's exhaustion than to its restoration and renewal. My plea this evening is simple. We must tip the scales the other way. We must find ways of contributing more to the world's renewal and restoration than to its exhaustion. What if the church was known for that? What if it was known as the place that knew something about the kind of rest that renews and restores? The world needs that church right now, but I can't do it on my own. Are you willing to help? I talked to the trees outside earlier. They said they're in. And the silty loam soil down at the farm and the stony brook that runs nearby, they said they're ready. I even mentioned it to God. God said, I thought you'd never ask. Thank you.